Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not a drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, Yes, we are trying to keep democracy alive. It ain't easy, but working together, I think we can still do it. And, you know, generally it seems that people's eyes glaze over when the subject is the federal budget. But according to our guest, the next fight over spending in Washington could seriously affect your life and my life and everybody's lives. As Isaiah Poole argues, this year's budget debate matters, and we all need to be actively engaged. Isaiah Poole, thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. Well, Isaiah J. Poole uh, has been the editor of OurFuture.org since 2007. Previously, he worked for 25 years in mainstream media, most recently at Congressional Quarterly, where he covered congressional leadership and tracked major bills through Congress. Most of his journalism experience has been in Washington. Sorry about that. As both a reporter and an editor on topics ranging from presidential politics to pop culture. Well, you would enjoy New Hampshire then. Uh, His work has put him at the front lines of ideological battles between progressives and so-called conservatives. He also served as a founding member of the Washington Association of Black Journalists and the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association. Again, thanks for being with us. It's great to be on. Well, every year... There's a lot of heat generated under the dome of the Capitol building about the federal budget right about this time of year. It seems that a lot of it is political posturing. Neither side, in the least, actually expecting its proposed budget to become law. This year, it's it's even more important. It's kind of different. The Republicans are now in control of both the House and the Senate. And now the real test for them as all radical movements have discovered upon taking office, boy, it's one thing to throw bombs from the outside, quite another to actually govern. You write that the current crop of Republicans now in power are conservative extremists. Personally, I can't see anything genuinely conservative about them at all. I fail to see anything other than their, that, that their funders' interests are calling the shots. That's what they're conserving, the, the people that provide them... Well, they're- Go ahead. You're right that there is a the consistent strain in what is being proposed in both the House and the Senate is in line with a lot of the corporate interests and ide- ideological interests that support the Republican Party right now that have sort of taken over the party. So you see a lot of, uh, certainly in the tax policy, where upper-income people are, partic- are, are 
not only protect it, but actually there is an active move to cut taxes for the wealthy uh, and to shift burdens from the wealthy to lower-income people. Uh, in energy policy, it stands out because there is this effort where they say we want to step up energy production. They say that at the same time as they say they want to cut subsidies for sustainable energy. Right. And solar. You see this time and time again. Health care, the, the push to eliminate Obamacare, to, to uh, repeal Obamacare, uh, and replace it with some as still <laughs> only vaguely specified uh, plan uh, would be designed to not challenge the insurance industry and the medical industry. Right. Um, so, and it goes on and on and on. I guess that's what they mean by conservative now, working for their uh, corporate masters. It's They're not even pretending anymore. And And... It sounds conservative to to focus on reduced reducing spending and uh, cutting deficit spending. They seems to always talk about a deficit crisis. Uh, Isaiah, what's the reality on this? Why do they keep harping on a, a so called deficit crisis? What is the reality? It's actually inexplicable at this point because uh, the latest Congressional Budget Office estimate of of the current uh, annual uh, deficit is 2.7% of the country's gross domestic product. 2.7% is the 50-year average of how what deficits have run in this country. You know, through Democratic administrations, through Republican administrations, it's been up and it's been down. We actually had surpluses in the Clinton years. We had very high uh, debt during the Bush years, uh, deficits during the Bush years, even higher uh, in the, uh, at the end going into the Obama administration, where it hit a peak of about 10%. Right. We're now down from 10% to 2.7%. In any other era, we would be... We would be talking about uh, what a remarkable uh, achievement that has been. Yeah. Uh, of course, instead, that, that whole fact is being ignored. And I would argue also that the consequences of bringing the deficit down that far that fast have also been ignored. But let's just take the deficit piece just as it is. Going from almost 10% down to 2.7%, and we have a budget, and the current trend line would have us going, at least for the next couple of years, going even lower than that, down to about 23 to 2.4% of gross domestic product. I mean, we would be talking, uh, you know, we would be, uh, you know, hoisting President Obama. <laughs> and any other, if it weren't President Obama, right. we, were taking, we would be parading the president down, Pennsylvania Avenue with uh, confetti tape, in, yeah. um, and the high school band. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is amazing, really. I mean, if, if that isn't conservative, you know, reducing the budget deficit from 10% to 2.7, th- th- I mean, that is a, a clearly a conservative budget. Now, what, I mean, let's see if we can put this deficit term uh, in, in terms that people can 
can really get. You know, what does this mean to the average person? What kind of deficits do we generally run? You know, in our household or business expenses. Well, that's a very good point. Well, actually, I'm not even sure that that's in one level a good point in the sense that, you know, if you look at the average household, uh, the average homeowner certainly has a huge debt in terms yes. of the house. They have a mortgage that they pay every month, and they probably are paying that over a space of about 20 or 30 years. Yes. Uh, you know, they have a car that they're paying for over a five- or six-year time span. Any household has probably, uh, many households have debt that exceeds their income at any given point in time. Uh, of course. But I'm not even sure that that's the right comparison. Uh, because, at the, you know, here's what's fundamentally, what we fundamentally get wrong about how we talk about budget. Households are not governments. Uh, when politicians, and even President Obama has fallen into this trap, unfortunately, says that, you know, the, you know, the average, uh, you know, ordinary Americans can't spend more than they, uh, than they earn, even though we do. We do, yeah. <laughs> um, and the federal government shouldn't either. Well, the federal government's currency, the dollar, is a reserve currency for the global economy. Uh, which is something which is a privilege that households don't get to have. That's okay. for sure. Yeah. Um, the United States government has something called the Federal Reserve. Yes. Uh, which regulates uh, currency and its value. Um, and therefore, we have resources. Uh, yeah, we have. You know, there the, we are part of a global currency exchange system. Mm-hmm. Uh, which households are not a part of. One of the things that, and we have to realize that there, there's that fundamental difference. One of the things that's very interesting right now in terms of our role in the global economy is that because of the fiscal policies that we have in place and because of the relative health of our economy vis-a-vis the rest of the world right now, um, our dollar is strong, uh, and that's it a mixed means blessing, that yeah. it means that we can borrow cheaply. It also happens to mean that uh, our uh, exports tend to be more expensive, and imports into the country get to be cheaper, which actually has a consequence, a negative consequence. Yes, actually, sure does on on, uh, on jobs. Mm-hmm. Because it means that it's harder for us to ship our jobs or ship um, our, our goods, goods yeah. overseas. And it's also easier, actually, for corporations to ship jobs overseas because they can justify it uh, by, through the cost savings of, mm-hmm. of bringing in uh, imported uh, goods. So these are all of the kinds of factors that a country gets to weigh when it makes decisions about its deficits and debt and its fiscal policy and its um, uh, budget policies that households don't get to weigh. Right. Uh, if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Isaiah Poole, editor of OurFuture.org. And just to clarify, debt and deficit. People, let's face it, often get the two terms confused. What can, exactly. what can you say about that? 
Well, that the 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 deficit is the annual uh, balance sheet of the federal government. So uh, every year the federal government runs up a deficit of, or it runs a surplus, as it did right. during the you know nineteen ninety nine two thousand mm-hmm. period when uh, President Clinton was in office. That's true. Now there is a long term debt. And the long-term debt is the accumulative effect of the deficits over time. Now, uh, the question is, and it's a valid question long-term, is what is a sustainable debt for the United States? Mm -hmm. The debt in the United States has uh, is usually uh, 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 in terms of percentage of gross domestic product. That's the best way to think of it. Uh, you usually hear deficit hawks or debt right, hawks right. say, we're running a $15 trillion debt. And, yeah, that's true. But what is that debt in the context of the size of the economy? Uh, coming out of World War II, the United States had a debt that was significantly over 100% of its gross domestic product. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and, but we, the United States, it collapsed. No. It managed that debt uh, through very aggressive economic growth that followed World War II. Yes. Uh, the country was able to bring that debt uh, down to a sustainable, manageable level. Um, and so the argument... That we, I, that we ought to make, and I admit that sometimes it's counterintuitive because we are still in this box of people thinking of, you know, their household budgets and their personal struggles with, you know, making sure That's that right. their paychecks last through the month. Right. And I get that, but again, households are not government, um, and. Uh, what you what may be beneficial for your money management as a household is not the same as what's beneficial for a government. And it is important, obviously, that we, the people, elect uh, people who are going to dig into this and be able to get it and to manage it properly so as to benefit the common good. I know that seems sort of common good what's that some sort of communist conspiracy these days i don't know and and it seems to me the 50s after the second world war tremendous prosperity just some of the the biggest uh growth that we have ever seen and there was deficit spending back then and and we've had it before and and you've written isaiah that we've already reduced federal deficits too far too fast what what makes you say that well, let's just go to what what the dilemma right now is at the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, who just had a press conference yesterday. And her challenge right now is when do we get out of this unprecedented uh, uh, interest, interest rates at near 0% oh, yeah. situation, which is something we've never really experienced before. Not in my lifetime. And, and you know... Uh, on the one hand, we are in, in, a, in an unprecedented situation that, that I think scares some people uh, on Wall Street and, and some of the economists at the Fed. 
But on the other hand, we know that the economy is so tenuous, and Yellen knows that economic growth is so tenuous, that even going up a quarter percent could be enough to destabilize the economic growth that we have. That's how tenuous things are. Now, imagine what might have been the case, where we might be today, if instead of the ratcheting back from the initial uh, American Recovery Act that we had in um, uh, 2009, we had this burst of spending um, that uh, was uh, that President Obama was able to push through. And it began to do some good. Imagine what would have happened if instead of the cataclysm we had in 2010, where the House flipped and the budget discussions took a 180 and actually President Obama had to, felt compelled also to uh, turn around and ratchet back on some of the things that he was advancing. Suppose we were able to do a second wave of stimulus spending that was targeted at uh, communities that were still struggling to come out of the recession that had not, you know, that in many cases are still falling behind. Um, I just wrote a piece uh, uh, just a few days ago about Ferguson, Missouri, and one of the stories that I don't think we're talking enough about that is the massive decline in employment in St. Louis County. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was in part a consequence of industry moving overseas. Now imagine if we said, look, there are, uh, at, at back about 2010, there were still uh, somewhere in the order of uh, more than 100 metropolitan areas where unemployment was well above 10%. And we said, okay, we've done this general wave of spending. Our second wave is going to be in communities that still have sustained unemployment. And we're going to put more money into infrastructure. We're going to put more money into clean energy. Mm-hmm. We're going to hire back those teachers that got, got laid off because state governments couldn't raise the revenue to uh, keep those teachers on the payroll. Uh, We're going to go in and make sure that there are enough police on the streets and firefighters in the fire stations. Uh, You know, we're going to step up and do all of that. And uh, we're we're going to um, have those dollars recirculate in those local communities. Sounds good. We would have unemployment rates today below 5%. We would have a labor market that is tighter, and that therefore would ex- there would be some higher, uh, some upward pressure on wages. Uh, yeah. There wouldn't be any question about uh, the tenuousness of the current uh, economic growth that we have, um, and even though the annual deficit might have been temporarily right. Uh, higher. Right. Imagine how quickly you could recoup all of that if, people if the taxes. economy is growing at a 4 to 5% rate right. as opposed to a 2% rate. Absolutely. And it just seems, 
you know, so clear that, you know, this all this this mantra that Republicans keep saying, reduce the deficit, reduce the deficit. Well, this is the result on real people's lives, that there is a lack of investment where it needs to be done. And that's really not, you know, they say run government more like a business. Well, any business knows, it seems to me, you have to invest prudently to be able to prosper and grow in the future. But they don't want to talk about that. They just want to say, cut the deficit, cut the deficit. And, and by cutting it too far, you know, a lot of people are paying a high price. It's bringing it right yeah. back right back down to uh, to home. What, what about the, the economic tool of austerity? We've seen the harm created by the imposition of austerity budgets on other countries like Spain and Greece and others. How, what are the Republicans now in the majority in Congress in both houses saying about austerity? Do they, do they want more austerity? Do they not see how uh, austerity may have harmed the American economy and citizens? Are they still talking about austerity, or what are they saying in their new proposed budget about that? Well, I think the Republicans really are, you know, it's as if you're, you're looking uh, at, they're looking through the world through a different set of glasses. That's <laughs> the <word. laughs> um, you're too kind. The things that we talk about in terms of austerity and the, the consequences of austerity, it's like it's, they're, they're in a totally different world. They don't think of themselves as imposing austerity. What they see themselves, they see a world in which uh, that is perhaps best encapsulated by that offhand comment that Mitt Romney uh, made when he was a presidential candidate. Mm-hmm about the 47% who are mooching off of government right. and are dependent on government um, and uh, are only interested in uh, perpetuating their government dependency. And that their mission then is to eliminate those dependencies on the presumption that if you, the more hoops that uh, the more difficult you make it to access government services, the more conditions that you impose, and the more unfriendly you make uh, social mm-hmm. services, mm-hmm. Um, that then people will start making moral, upright choices about being uh, self-reliant and will pick themselves up by their own bootstraps and uh, be independent. Talk about delusional. <laughs> um, I mean, people, but, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a function of coming from a different world. I'm actually sort of thinking back to, or maybe not even being in touch with their own world. Uh, there was an interesting piece in the Washington Post about the area where Joni Ernst, the uh, news senator oh, from um, Iowa, Iowa, yeah, uh, comes from. And if you recall her response to the State of the Union address, she talks about how she was the biscuit lady at Hardee's, and she rose from that to be the United States senator. Um, you know, maybe you know, she, maybe part of her problem is that she hasn't been to Hardee's lately and talk to the people who actually work today mm. at a Hardee's and talk to them about their economic prospects 
Because even if it were possible, and I presume since she did it, that, yeah, you could be the biscuit lady at Hardee's and, and be a United States senator. I happened to be um, a, um, back when I worked at McDonald's, they didn't have biscuits, but I was a fry guy at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And I rose to be whatever you want to say I am now. Right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this is a different world. Um, and people... and, and um, the, you know, through our trade policies, through our lack of investment in people, through uh, the fact that, uh, through a simple fact that um, many of the people who are in the Senate now went to colleges. Think about this. Sure. They went to colleges, state colleges, where tuition was probably quite low. A couple of hundred dollars a semester. Yeah. And now tuition at these same institutions is is tens of thousands of dollars. And a lot of that is because of cuts at the federal and state level to to colleges. Things that you, uh, opportunities that used to be free or minimal cost. Right. now require you to go down to Bank of America or Citibank or some other institution to get a, a, uh, a, a multiple thousand dollar loan. Yeah. And, and at the end of that, you can't get a job that enables you to pay that back in a reasonable time. It just it seems so fairly obvious, I would think, how counterproductive that is. You know, it's not only you know, blatantly mean-spirited, it's just dumb economics. People, you'll have more revenue if people are working more. People want to work. They don't want to be reliant on uh, government jobs. They know they'll do better. I mean, government handouts, uh, maybe there should be government jobs. That's another story. I mean, that worked pretty right. well. That, that, you know, the whole Keynesian economics thing works pretty well. But uh, it just seems, you know, t- to make it harder for people who are already trying to lift themselves up, it just seems uh, remarkably dumb. Now, Obama tried his stimulus a few years ago, and the conventional wisdom is that it failed. Did it fail? And if so, why? We're talking about a little bit of you know deficit right. spending and, and Keynesian economics there. Did that fail? And if so, why? Well, no. In a word, no. And what I compare it to is to when a doctor... When you have an infection and, the, and you go to the doctor, the doctor prescribes to you an antibiotic. And, it, and the doctor says, you know, you take this set of pills, you know, one, one a day or two a day for seven days to clear the infection. Now, if you only take the pills for, you know, the first, or if you only take half the dosage, right. You actually get less than half the effect. In fact, you may end up with none of the effect because uh, the bacteria build up a re- the germs build up a resistance to the doses that you're getting, and, and therefore they become less effective. That's why the doctor prescribes the dose at the level that he did, so or she did, yeah, so that. Yeah. You, so, the stimulus in my mind was the exact same thing. You had a. The prescription was to inject uh, a, a certain level of economic uh, uh, spending into the economy mm-hmm. uh, to uh, generate a, a, a positive feedback loop of 
money in people's pockets, money in businesses' pockets, that would recirculate in communities, would therefore lead to the creation of more goods and services that people would buy, and therefore hiring that would, would have to happen in order for those goods and services to be provided. That was the goal. Now, the hole that was created by the, by the recession was a more than $2 trillion hole. Wow. Um, you know, so. and, and there's general agreement on that. And into that $2 trillion-plus hole, we dropped in about $800 million, right. $800 billion, right. of which 400 and roughly 400, actually it was a little bit less than 400 billion, I think, was direct spending. The rest of it was tax cuts. Uh, the economic, poli- I think it was the Economic Policy Institute generated a chart that, that looked at the return on the dollar for the various pieces of the Recovery Act. Uh, some of it was tax policy, some of it was spending policy. Almost all of the spending policy, all of the spending policy, I would say, uh, you got a return on the dollar that was more than one for one. So, for example, if you spend, if you give a poor person, low-income person, an extra, uh, extra food stamps, for example, mm-hmm. um, that actually is a return of about a dollar fifty-four for every dollar you give that person. Why? Because that person immediately takes that dollar, goes to the food store, buys himself something to eat. That means that that store has an additional dollar's worth of business and can then uh, pay a worker, right. uh, et cetera. It's a ripple, sure. It, it's, it, and that's how it, it, it continues to ripple through the economy. The person who bought that food or grew that food uh, has the, you know, had, gets a share of that dollar, et cetera, et cetera. It ripples through the economy. Um, if you give a person a tax cut, particularly if that person is a, uh, is a well-off person, right. what happens to that money? Nothing. Uh, it might sit in the bank. Right. might get shipped overseas. Um, maybe you buy a yacht with it, uh, you know, right. or, and or, or something like that. But, but you know, it's, 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 um, it there's no guarantee anyway. that right. that particular dollar is going to circulate through the economy in the same way that if I gave that dollar to a, you know, struggling mm-hmm. family. Sure. It, but this is this is not the way the Republicans see it. The the uh, if you just tuned into Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Isaiah Poole. We're talking about uh, the ongoing struggle about the 2016 budget, and the Republicans now in both the House and the Senate are calling it a balanced budget for a stronger America. What what does what does that translate into? Is that just meaningless words, or, or? it's it's. You know, uh, balanced budgets do not lead to stronger Americas. Uh, balanced budgets, when they are particularly when they are balanced on the backs of struggling families, actually lead to a weaker America uh, because you are uh, not allowing for uh, 
proper investment. Let's just talk, let's just talk education, for example. Um, if you're not providing money for preschool so that uh, school districts can offer all-day preschool, mm-hmm. um, oh. and yeah. many of these communities cannot do that on their own based on their tax budget, uh, based on their tax base. Yeah, the property they have to, to do that based on uh, funding that they'll get from the states or from the Fed. Where it's most needed, there's less ability to pay. Yeah, Exactly. Um, so if, if we're not providing preschool, if we're not giving uh, our public schools adequate support. And I know that that's a lightning rod because, I mean, I know we could do whole shows just on public schools. Hmm. But let's just stipulate for now that whatever you think is wrong with public schools, there's no debate that we have schools that in this country that are struggling to be good. They're struggling to do the right thing. They are struggling to, to recruit good teachers and good principals. And they have massive challenges trying to educate the children that come into their doors. And what we ought to be doing with those public schools is giving them all the support they can rather than undercutting them uh, with so-called competition right. from private entities. And Ed, just, I'll just put that out there. What, what does the Republican uh, proposed budget say about funding for education? Um, it, it, it does not provide for universal preschool. Um, it, it encourages the uh, uh, support for uh, private schools and, mm. and, and charters. Um, and it uh, will not, and it cuts back on higher education in, will cut back uh, funding for uh, Pell Grant uh, scholarships for uh, low- and moderate-income students. Which have helped so many people. Yeah, and that, that helps so many people. Um, and certainly uh, closes the door on things that people like Senator Elizabeth Warren is trying to, to do in terms of relie- relieving um, uh, college debt. Uh, the Progressive Caucus, we ought to talk about the Congressional Pro- Progressive Caucus. Oh, yes, uh, we will. Uh, because, you know, that is an alternative vision in which um, we're looking at that whole uh, set of investments that we need to make in people mm-hmm. from the moment they come out of the womb yes. uh, until they retire. And it's about making sure that we have the best education, uh the best income security, so that, for example, if a person wants to be on their own, they don't have to worry about uh, health uh, access to health care. Right. Um, if a person is temporarily out of a job, they won't go hungry while they look for another one. Um, you know, those kinds of things. Well, and that when a person finally gets to retirement, they will actually have an ad- adequate resources to retire with dignity. Well, it sounds like what, what you're 
advocating, what the Progressive Caucus would be advocating, would be what the Republicans, the so-called conservatives, would call, rather derogatorily, the nanny state. What's your response to that? Well, it's not, we're not telling, it's not about telling people what to do. It's about making sure that people, in fact, live in an economy and an environment that allows people to rise to the highest level of their ability. And you can't do that in an environment where we, you know, you, you, you know, the, the kid that's living, you know, uptown gets to, gets to go to preschool, mm-hmm. but my kid doesn't right. because I live on the other side of the track. Right. Um, it's very real. Um, I, you know, but, you know, uh, other, there are some, some uh, kids get to go to a nice public school in their neighborhood, but my kid doesn't. Um, I, uh, you know, I, you know we, we have disparities that are, like, baked into the cake of this country. Yes. Um, and um, hmm. as Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren, like uh, often says, we have an economy that is rigged against the majority of the public. Hmm. It's amazing how the majority of the public sits and takes it. And, you know, aside from being a, a, quote, nanny state, you know, calling for more spending, more investment in infrastructure and in schools and things like that, wouldn't Republicans argue that that would be a budget buster? Well, they, they would argue, they would argue that. Yes. And, um, The counter-argument is that the number one priority of any member of Congress right now or any presidential candidate right now needs to be growing the economy in a way that is equitable and sustainable. Hmm. So, you know, if if you have a growing economy in which People are getting good jobs at a fair wage. And if you're growing the economy based on a, a sense of what is sustainable for the future, then all of these concerns about you know, long-term debt begin to take care of themselves. Great example of Social Security. We're mm. about to have a big fight over that. Yeah. Um, and we need to. Um, but here's the thing. One of the reasons, and there, was, there are studies that prove this, one of the reasons why there is a so-called Social Security shortfall, which, by the way, is about 18 years off, by the way. But, yes, in 18 to 20 years from now, uh, Social Security, um, Social Security spending, will exceed what is in the trust fund right now. But the reason why that is happening 18 years from now, one of the reasons, it's because income growth among the, the top 60 or the bottom 60% of the American workers has been so poor. Mm-hmm. We've actually had uh, real, uh, real uh, uh, in real terms, decreases in income over the last 15 to 20 years. 
which means that there have been... Less money in the trust fund. Uh, that has affected the tax base on which you could uh, collect Social Security revenues. And yet, now, the, the Republicans oftentimes have talked about trying to cut Social Security along with their allies in the so-called no-labels group. They, they are determined to cut Social Security. Yeah, and you wouldn't and, and 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 you wouldn't have to cut social security at all. In fact, you would be able to increase social security benefits if you did basically did two things. Number one, have a full employment economy in which people are are, are earning living wages. Number one. Mm. Number two, um, uh, let's raise the cap on who gets to pay social security taxes. Um, Right now, if you earn a million dollars a year or two million dollars a year, the percentage of your income uh, that is paid into uh, Social Security is much less than the person who is, you know, a teacher or a firefighter or you know, a janitor right. or whatever. Right, working person. Um, uh, and so that's because there's a cap. Uh, you don't pay Social Security on anything other beyond the first one hundred and Eighteen thousand dollars, maybe one hundred eight thousand dollars of of your earnings, and if your earnings happen to be uh, through uh, capital gains, uh, you know if you're sitting in your living room and you earn your money as a day trader, uh, you don't get to pay any social security tax at all on that money that you earn. Mm -hmm. But the, but it it can be done better and. Right. It's it's hard to remember or for many people to believe that Paul Ryan was actually the Republican nominee for vice president. It's it's amazing. He proposed a budget a while ago, which didn't seem to go anywhere. Now he's on the Ways and Means Committee. Will he try once again to replace Medicare with a voucher system? And are Republicans generally buying into that? They're now a majority. And how would that affect seniors and the overall economy? Well, there's an interesting dynamic going on because, as you correctly said, uh, uh, Paul Ryan is now over the Ways and Means Committee, and that's right. primarily uh, uh, deals tax with tax policy. You're right. Uh, Congressman Tom Price is now yeah, the yeah. Uh, Budget Committee chairman. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Price doesn't bring to that seat the same uh, star power that Ryan brought. Uh, Ryan had this sort of aura about him that enabled him to actually say pretty audacious things, yeah. and the press <laughs> would, would fawn over it and, and anoint him as a great intellectual heavyweight. <laughs> uh, amazing, yeah. yeah. Um, price is... The general consensus is price doesn't pull that off as well. Mm. Um, but the other thing that's interesting is the Republicans in the Senate, uh, many of whom uh, saw what happened to Ryan yeah. uh, when <laughs> seniors and other groups basically ate him alive yes, for proposing did. that uh, Medicaid be turned into a block grant and Medicare be turned into uh, a, a voucher program. You yeah. have this little, you know, coupon that basically you, you try to uh, shop, uh, take to insurance companies and try to buy private insurance. Um, and the some of the Senate Republicans may like that idea, 
but they're certainly not going to put their necks out. <laughs> and, some of, and, 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 and so that's why you see when the Senate released its budget proposal this week, uh, the Senate uh, in the details was less specific than the House version. They, um, yeah, they, they were there. It, it was it was it was more vague, and and it was because you know they 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 want to go there, but they're they're scared of the political uh, backlash. Right. Well, and that just goes to show for people who. I mean, let, let's face it: the Republicans and and the and the plutocrats that are really running the show they they must be overjoyed that so many working and middle class people have accepted a sense of powerlessness. But here, what you're saying is they are scared of the backlash. They're not going to come out and say that they want to replace Medicare with a voucher system, and they're not going to uh, you know replace Medicaid with a block grant because they're concerned about the backlash from the public. We are not powerless. People have to remember that. Uh, if you just tuned into Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Isaiah Poole, who's uh, written about uh, the uh, how the next fight over spending in Washington could seriously affect our lives. And it can. And you talk about, you know, th- there is still the people's power. We do have the power of the vote. There is, uh, well, as Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears. Please tell us about the power of the drug, insurance, and health care companies in the halls of this Republican Congress when it comes to crafting uh, their budget. Well, it, it is, it, it, that power, in fact, I think is one of the things that mortally crippled Obamacare, actually, uh, mortally uh, crippled right. the Affordable Care Act. We had to make compromises to yes. people who were, were right. pushing uh, that through Congress. Uh, made compromises at the at the behest of the insurance industry mm-hmm. uh, that I think have, in some ways, have come back to bite us. Yeah, um, most regrettable. If there had been a public option, for example, mm-hmm. um, which most of us who are fighting for the Affordable Care Act had insisted on, that we said that it's okay if you want to keep, if you don't want to go all the way to single payer in one leap. We can live with that as a compromise, but what you have to do is have a public option that competes alongside the private insurance industry. And what does that do? It gives people more choice, and it allows that that public option can put in place a set of of controls on uh, set of pressures against the insurance industry and the hospital conglomerates and and the providers that won't compromise care, but would certainly put a check on uh, the sort of the really crazy uh, things that uh, uh, drug companies and uh, medical providers do that ratchet up costs. And it could mm-hmm. be a way to model how we could manage care much more efficiently. The public sector uh, insurance system in Europe mm-hmm. do a far better job of managing costs than we do. 
And uh, for all of the pleas that, well, if you do some of that stuff, we won't develop drugs, we won't do this, we won't do that. In Europe, they do it, and they get along just fine. Yeah, they do. And before we get to the uh, uh, more back to the uh, uh, Progressive Caucus budget, I have to ask, you know, and, and members of Congress, they always say, well, most of them say anyway, that their first priority is national security. That's their number one job, national security. I, they keep parroting that over and over again. Do tell us, Isaiah Poole, how does the Pentagon make out under this Republican budget? Let me guess. <laughs> uh, it's, I, I give you one guess. It's actually, uh, according to one chart that I saw, over 10 years, they... Uh, Spending in the House and uh, the House budget, Republican budget, four hundred billion dollars higher. It's the only category over ten years. It's the only category of government spending that ends up higher mm. over the ten-year period. Um, and the obvious question is, what on earth are we buying with that money? Really, um, we are. Uh, that spending is it does not come with uh, a the kind of reassessment that, to be fair to the Obama administration, to some of the Democrats on the Hill, uh, have been crying out for in terms of you know, how much money are we spending in bases that we don't need? Right. How many? How much money are we spending on weapon systems that are no longer appropriate for the kind yeah. of of conflicts that we engage in? Cold War stuff. What about the percentage? Fundamental question. What about the percentage of money that we spend on warfare versus how much we spend on this diplomacy and humanitarian efforts that would prevent crises from occurring? Um, yeah, does it really, if, if we want to be secure as a nation from attacks, does it achieve that? Are we getting a good bang for our buck? Um, I think there's, I mean, there's the war profiteers that are doing just swell. And again, these weapons, so many of them left over from the Cold War era that are, have been obsolete for decades. It's, it's amazing to me, but these guys won't stand up a, against it. Well, we're talking about, you know, they want to cut, cut, cut everything except uh, the Pentagon. Uh, but... It, and, it, and, and let me just just, sure. just interject. Sure, please. You do. know, one of the the, the tragedies, uh, the United States military, uh, U.S. military leaders have identified the consequences of global war, warming as a security uh, threat, as you know, uh, you know, water becomes less avail- available in some places, there are floods in other places. I mean, there are all sorts of long-term effects of climate that are going to be potentially destabilizing. Um, And the National Aeronautics and Space Administration is one of the agencies that monitors climate. And they are being cut. And their capacity to monitor climate change is being cut uh, quite explicitly uh, because... Uh, many of these members don't want NASA involved. They don't want the uh, oceanographic uh, 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 space since, yeah, uh, administration uh, engaged in uh, 
doing climate change research. Um, it's, 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 it's criminal. And we're going to end up not having uh, with the kinds of budgets that the Republicans are trying to push on the country uh, the kinds of basic research that we need in order to properly understand climate change, to properly understand uh, the uh, geopolitical uh, consequences, yes. and, uh, and uh, arm ourselves to uh, prevent uh, climate or, or block climate change. I think that's the thing that the, uh, you know, if we had more information about what we're doing to ourselves, mm. uh, we would be much more urgently about reducing the fossil fuels that we use. And the fossil fuel industry obviously has a vested interest oh, in yeah. making sure that that does not happen. Oh, yeah, for sure. So there's so much that's going on in the Republican budget that seems fairly clear is really, really seriously undercutting our genuine national security in so many different ways. Uh, so it's amazing to me that the Republicans keep whacking the middle and working classes and keep getting away with it. Tell us a bit about the Progressive Caucus proposed budget. Uh, they call for bringing corporate taxes back to the levels they paid when that horrible liberal Reagan was president. <laughs> do, do tell us about the Progressive Caucus budget and and what people can do, you know, we, we like to give people uh, opportunities to actually do something, to make a difference and to take action. Well, here's, let's give you the top lines first of the, the Progressive Caucus budget. Sure. Um, there will be a set of, there are a set of policies in that budget that the Economic Policy Institute has uh, said would produce a total of 8 million, 8.4 million new jobs over the next three years. Um, and it would do that through a whole host of things. Uh, it's infrastructure investment. We ratchet up the amount of, uh, of money that we spend on repairing uh, roads and bridges and public transportation, uh, Amtrak, uh, oh, yeah. what uh, other, other things that are fundamental to our economic growth. Uh, aid to states so that uh, we're putting money back in, in, in giving states money that they can use to hire uh, teachers and other public workers uh, that are needed uh, to provide services. Uh, the, for those who can't get a job right away or in communities where that are still behind, and there are many that are, um, the federal government will, 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 will pay to employ you until you can get on your feet and until the private sector gets on its feet to, uh, to, to hire. I mean, there is a lot of work. Uh, people look down on the, uh, their nose at the idea of the federal government uh, creating jobs and employing people. But when you think about it, there is so much work that needs to be done, Absolutely. so many services that need to be provided, so many people who need uh, basic assistance. And why not pay people to work? People would rather is, do by that. By the way, yeah. a conservative principle. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, the difference is that that uh, the Progressive Caucus budget is creating good jobs at fair wages, and is giving is, and is and says that a job is a way for. 
get on your feet. It's not a, a punishment for you for for some moral failing we think you have because you're not prosperous, but it's because we we think that you deserve the dignity of a job, and there is real stuff that needs to be done to rebuild this country and rebuild this economy. And we, as a country, are 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 are, are prepared to put together our resources to do that. Now, um, you mentioned tax policy, and um, one thing that one of the things that the Progressive uh, Caucus does is that it makes sure that the current structures that we have in place for low-income people, such as the Earned Income Tax Credit, uh, are either kept in place or enhanced uh, so that people are, are not, do not fall into poverty. This is a lot that, that, and, that right. can be done. We're bumped up against the end of the hour, but people want to take action. Uh, uh, people want to take action. We're going to have a link on our website uh, where you can become a citizen co-sponsor of the Progressive Caucus budget. Oh, great. We're trying to get several, uh, many thousands of citizen co-sponsors. We want a majority of the Democrats in the House to vote for this budget when it comes up for a vote next week. In order to do that, we need massive thousands of people to become citizen co-sponsors. And we'll have that link on our website. And the website is? Uh, Ourfuture.org. Great. Very helpful stuff indeed. We are anything but powerless. We really can make a difference. Isaiah J. Poole, thank you so much for being with us. Very informative and uh, hopefully helps people uh, be able to take some action and and implement some new values into our self-government. Thanks a lot for being with us. My pleasure. New Values. as a horse ah, but everything is spinning and if I use a gun I'm sure to go to prison I'm stubborn as a mule and nobody breaks my rules but nothing comes my way Pair of shoulders. I got a love you can't imagine. Yeah, and what I got, I double. I swear I'm keeping out of trouble. I'm looking for one new value. I'm looking for one new value, but nothing comes my way.